Hello, this is Michael Stone, the host of Conversations. We're committed to bringing you leading-edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, and spiritual fulfillment. On our program, we look for positive solutions to local and global issues that leave you touched, moved, and inspired to action. Our weekly guests include local and global experts and concerned citizens working together to heal the wounds that separate, alienate, and marginalize people. Welcome to Conversations. This is your host, Michael Stone, and I'm really thrilled to have one of my heroes on today, Peter Sange. Dr. Peter Sange is an American systems scientist who's a senior lecturer at the MIT Sloan School of Management and the co-faculty at the New England Complex Systems Institute. He's also the founder of the Society for Organizational Learning. Dr. Senge is the author of The Fifth Discipline, which brought the concept of the learning organization mainstream. His current work focuses on shared understanding of complex problems such as global food system, climate change, educational systems, and regenerative economics, also regenerative agriculture. Just so good to have you on the show, Peter. I'm, I'm excited to share you with our listeners. For people who have never read The Fifth Discipline, I think it's sold like two million copies and it's one of the Bibles in, in my field, the organizational development field. And basically it talks about the mental models we have, about team learning, about personal mastery and systems thinking. And I think that's a good place to start here because you know, it's interesting. I learned systems thinking, number one, by being a deviant Air Force brat and learning how to manipulate the system and later studying with Howard Odom, energy basis for man and nature. So I love thinking this way. And I'm always really surprised that other people don't think that way. I'd like you to talk about systems thinking in general and mm. how that has impacted your work, particularly the large scale change work. Sure. Well, maybe a, a good place to start, since it's not the obvious one, given your question, is the work over the last, I would say, 25 years with kids. Myself, uh, personally, I've gotten drawn more and more into working in education, in part because I've been inspired by what I saw as quite remarkable work going on with five, six, seven-year-old children, even younger. And I think one of the real kind of insights from that is how natural systems thinkers we are. We grow up in families, we play in playgrounds, we're always surrounded in a social reality, whether functional or dysfunctional. We know a lot of times kids grow up in very, very harsh circumstances. Still, that's kind of secondary. Your innate, you might say very basic awareness that the things around you are really interconnected is really there. And it doesn't, in a sense, have to be built. In fact, I think you can argue that school does a pretty good job of unbuilding it of tearing it down, of creating an artificial world of right answers and wrong answers and, you know, passing tests and pleasing teachers and all that kind of stuff. Whereas our predisposition is to see this world of interrelatedness. For people in cultural contexts who grow up much closer to the natural world, of course, that's interwoven with the extraordinary interconnectedness of the natural world. So whether or not it's the social reality or the larger natural ecological reality, it's a reality of interconnectedness. If you think about it, nature probably would not have created a species so fundamentally inimical to the nature of nature <laughs> that that would be weird to us. 
the only thing that's that's difficult, frankly, is the fact that it's kind of beaten out of us. The educational system being the most obvious way, but I think you could say our mainstream culture is pretty relentless with the focus on materialism and getting this and getting that. And, you know, a lot of kids grow up, particularly in cities, thinking their food comes from the grocery store. I mean, this total disconnect our culture reinforces between who I am and the larger context in which I live, without which I wouldn't live. Our food does not come from the grocery store and no one lives without water. Well, where does water come from? Well, water is everywhere, and it is in this continuous process of movement in different forms. So all of these things are so fundamental that in an odd way, I often feel like you always have to apologize even for adding this adjective, systems thinking. I think awareness by its nature is grounded in interdependentness. And I think when our thinking, our kind of cognitive or conscious or particularly conceptual thinking processes are not fragmented. When they're not fragmented from this underlying systemic reality, they kind of naturally develop in this simple mode of seeing interconnectedness. Probably the video I use more often than any other is a video of three six-year-old boys who are sitting down and talking about why they're having fights on the playground. And without anybody asking them to do that, just because it's the kind of school they're embedded in they simply draw this little system map and the map consists of mean words and hurt feelings and they were sitting around this picture are they sitting on a little table with this little map of mean words and hurt feelings and more mean words and more hurt feelings and a teacher walks by flips on her phone says would you tell me what your picture says and they proceed to explain it and it's quite a beautiful uh, kind of tableau of this innate systemness in our awareness, because the boys are dealing with a very practical problem. They've been having fights every day they go out in the playground. They start having fights and they know they're gonna get in trouble. Teachers have already tried to intervene. You know, before long, their parents will be brought in. But as happens in when we get stuck in a social reality that's problematic, they're not sure what to do. So they drew their little map. Anyhow, the teacher says, would you explain it to me? And then one of the little boys says, well, first we have mean words, then we have hurt feelings, and that leads to more mean words, and that leads to more hurt feelings, and more mean words, and then a fight breaks out. And then the other little boy says, we've been looking for, this is his words, we've been looking for all the ways we could intervene in this system. And you look at the diagram, there's a bunch of things crossed off, and he said, well, we, we tried this, and it didn't seem to work too well, so we crossed that off, and we tried saying, I'm sorry, and well, we think that works a little, but we don't think it's very high leverage. And they're proceeding to have this extraordinary conversation to understand the system they've created in their relationship. And it's, it's quite stunning. When people see this, they, one, they can't believe it's real. I saw it's real. No one asked them to do it. They did it on their own. But are they exceptional kids? No, they're not exceptional kids. Are they in an exceptional school? No, it's a, actually a relatively high poverty, uh, I think about 70% free and reduced lunch school. But a lot of, uh, it's in uh, Tucson, Southern Arizona, and a lot of Hispanic American, Native American kids and Anglo kids, kind of a real typical sort of lower middle class polyglot community. Um, but, and it's always quite amazing to people. They sit there and they kind of shake their heads and go, wow. And invariably I hear comments like, couldn't we take these kids to Washington? I mean, this, this inability of us to have a, a good conversation, a real conversation about really tough social issues we're embedded in is, is so widespread in today's world that 
it's kind of stunning when people see that, well, actually children are much better at it than we adults. So anyhow, that, that's kind of a good way to understand it. It's when you, when you use a term like systems thinking, it sounds arcane, it sounds esoteric, it sounds like something maybe people at MIT would do. But I think, you know, eventually we'll outgrow the system, we'll just call it thinking. When we're really thinking in a way that's grounded in the interconnected realities we live in, we naturally attend to these interconnections and how we are collectively, individually and collectively, creating those realities. And of course, that's a kind of sensibility that's uh, profoundly needed today. It, yeah. it underlies so many of our, our deep problems. Well, something you said I really want to underline. By the way, I love that video. I've watched it several times. Oh. <laughs> it's, it's wonderful. The whole idea of learning. So your book was about creating learning organizations. Mm -hmm. And yet the word learning, kind of like responsibility, has a lot of baggage, particularly yeah. because everyone's gone to school right. and thinks of learning as sitting in a chair with someone up front and memorizing mm -hmm. a bunch of useless stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think so many kids today are really fed up and not even going to school because they right. feel it's, it's a waste of time. So talk about what you mean by learning and, and the learning organization or system. Well, if you think about it, again, it's not one of these words that we have to kind of recover. It's deeper, more original meaning. At some point in your life, you couldn't walk. At some point in your life, you could walk. In between was a profound learning process. So the simplest definition of learning we've used for years is any process which enhances our capacity to produce an outcome we really want to produce. Yeah. And you could extend that you to personal and collective. So teams learn. Anyone who's ever been part of a great theater ensemble, dance troupe, sports team has maybe seen this process of the team goes from here to here, collectively more able to create the outcomes it really wants to, to operate the way it would really like to operate. That's learning. Learning is very fundamental. It has nothing to do with school and it, it, it really is innate to humans, I would say not just to humans, because obviously throughout the animal world, you have all kinds of learning occurring. The problem is, of course, it, it, the concept got co-opted and our experience distorted by the schoolroom model of learning, the model you were caricaturizing, you know, the teacher in front's got all the answers, and I'll never forget when our oldest son came home from school one day, he had an epiphany, and he said, I got it, I got it, it's about guessing what's in the teacher's head. <laughs> because he had gone through the same process all children go through because you know before you went to school you spent your life learning you were learning to ride bicycles again you were learning to walk you were learning to talk you were learning to do whatever life is learning mm -hmm. and then you have to become socialized to this alternative institutional schoolroom model of right answers and wrong answers. Learning is not about right answers and wrong answers. There's, there is no right way to walk. We all walk quite differently. But there are more and less functional ways to walk. And same with anything else you, you talk about that's a genuine learning process. So I think that it's, it's not an arcane or esoteric term in any way. The problem is like so many things, our innate or deeper intuitive understanding gets supplanted or gets covered up at least and then eventually sort of supplanted by an institutional model, which is really off base. I think back 30 years now since you wrote your book, you just republished The Fifth Discipline and how things have changed in 30 years. And one of the things, of course, you call attention to is 
the impact and leadership of the interior world. And since you started this, there's been a real breakthrough in bringing mindfulness and meditation into the workplace. I'm just wondering if you can talk about that introspection, the impact of it, and how that has followed the evolution of the learning organization over the last 30 years and the impact of it. Well, as you say, the importance of it was always evident and simply because the work was always grounded in a lot of practical experience. And guess what? The people who were more successful with all the same tools and ideas were those who were more reflective. That was a term we traditionally used, you know, to think about your thinking or to put oneself in a position of, let's say, personal vulnerability. How is my own way of thinking and acting contributing to some of the difficulties we're experiencing? So this these acts of reflection, you know, this holding the mirror is obviously a very particular kind of approach to uh, introspection or acknowledging the importance of awareness. Mm -hmm. So it's always been uh, critical in our work, and I think it's been a very steady evolution of being able to be more explicit, more practice-oriented. So nowadays, for example, whenever we do serious capacity-building work, which mostly nowadays is with people in primary and secondary education, teachers, superintendents, people from ministries of education. There's quite a remarkable global network growing around the world to bring what today we call the compassionate systems perspective more and more into the mainstream. Basically, the main thing we can do today that we had difficulty doing uh, 25 years ago is we can actually take time to integrate real quiet, real contemplative or meditative practice into, into sessions. We always did a little bit of it, but now, of course, you can blah, 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 and tell lots of stories about brain science. I don't mean to be cynical, but I am a little bit because I think, why the hell do we need a bunch of, quote, brain science to tell us what for thousands of years people have been learning about? But that's okay. It's, it's, a, it's really a, a reflection of the present world, which is a very science. You know, science is kind of the religion of this age. If the scientists say it. It must be true. And, but there is a lot of good brain science now, and, and everywhere, if you look at the growth of the field of social-emotional learning, which has been a huge global movement in education, it really got its, its impetus and its acceleration from a lot of good scientists with their studies of both uh, early brain development, but particularly the role of the emotions and how we can all get hijacked by the emotions, and not just that, but being able to kind of relate that to amygdala response and neurophysiological phenomena, which all of a sudden make it much more real to people. So in any event, that's the main thing we can do today that we couldn't do before. We can talk about it in scientific terms and we can be much more explicit and much more intentional in building it into capacity building. One thing I'd like to draw attention to since we're talking about learning is the action and reflection model and the importance of being in action and the importance of embracing failures and embracing mm -hmm. uncertainty, which is mm -hmm. something that we've moved away from and now moving back to. Well, it's um, kind of fundamental in a lot of ways. I appreciate what you said about, you know, the, the, the limitations with emphasizing contemplative practice or reflection is in our kind of dichotomous, habitual ways of thinking, we forget that it's only as embedded in action that matters. You know, so the world doesn't change by people in, in meditation. The world may change by enough people in meditation starting to act differently. 
because their awareness has been shifted and their thinking and acting arise out of a different place. I, I think that uh, the trap here is is really dichotomy in a way. It's the either orness of you know, am I kind of thinking now or acting? You know, when you think about it or you really look at it carefully, you're never thinking without acting, and you're actually never acting without thinking. Even if you're in repose, you're acting. You know, you're in a, your body's in a state of repose. So, and clearly, whenever we're acting, there's a lot of thought going on. The problem is, it's 99.9% habitual thought. For most of us. When we're busy acting, when we're busy, our awareness of the habitualness of our thinking is very low. One of the inspiring uh, kind of ideas in, in the whole field of organization development, organization change, learning, system change, and I know you, you're aware of this, Michael, was the, was the writings of a man named Donald Schoen, S-C-H-O-N at MIT in the 80s, particularly 70s, 80s, and in the 90s, on what he called the reflective practitioner. And, and basically, it came from Don's studies of really effective professionals. So he studied therapists, and he studied lawyers, and he studied architects. And particularly, he was interested in when you had a, a, an effective professional work context. So a group of architects who seemed to really be able to learn together. And then he did this beautiful kind of uh, both storytelling and recounting, as well as reflecting and analyzing. And he said that the real... The key to these kind of extraordinarily effective professional work settings are people legitimate processes of reflection in action. And that was his phrase, reflection in action. So you build something and then you deconstruct it. You look at what happened after you've done it and you really think about it. He also coined the term, I think he called them virtual worlds actually, virtual realities. Before that was a jargon term co-opted by computer science. That if you look at the architects working in a sketch pad, that was his classic example. Together, they're building and tearing down buildings, but much more fast than you can ever do it by, by virtue of their sketch pad. And, and he called it, he said, it's a kind of virtual reality where it's not the real reality. It's not the reality of the built building. It's not the reality they're ultimately trying to shape. It's a reality that's more malleable. It's a reality where you can make mistakes without significant negative consequences. That was the key to what he called the virtual learning spaces. And if you think about it, it's what every child does, right? You learn to ride a bicycle, hopefully, if you have a little guidance, on a grassy lawn, right? If you learn to try to learn to ride a bicycle on a street with traffic, this is not a good idea. So you go someplace that's relatively safe. So you're still trying to learn, but if you make a mistake, you're not going to get killed. You're not going to get hurt seriously. And you get up and try again. You get up and try it again. I remember when our youngest son was learning to ride a bike. We, we didn't understand this for a long time. Our oldest son had learned so quickly. It didn't really matter. But we finally, he was, he, our youngest son got so discouraged, he quit and said, I'm not going to ride. You know, for a year. I don't think he went back for about a year. And he's about four years old or five years old. And finally, we took him out to a big grassy field. He fell down a few times, didn't really get hurt. And within about an hour, he was riding. So that principle of creating a safe space where you can make mistakes is really important. Because look, at in real settings where the consequences have real significance, none of us want to make mistakes, mm -hmm. obviously. So there's a built-in psychological impediment or resistance to acknowledging mistakes. We may know it's important, and we may create enough of trust amongst the group of people that we can talk about it a little, but nobody wants to screw up in the real game. You do, 
but it's not, it's not, it's difficult because it's not very safe. So what do you do in sports? You have a practice field, right? What do you do in, in any city? You create a, a relatively virtual setting where it's enough like the real setting that you can take actions that are significant actions. In other words, you're really doing it. You're not just talking about it. So you're, there's a meaningful domain of action with a greatly reduced consequence of negative outcomes. That's called a learning space. And, and that's really critical for intervening in any system. You know, how do you create, and you know, one simple way we do it always, a lot of people do this, it's natural. In any kind of larger collective, you try to create settings where people can have simple conversations about tough issues, where they can talk about things, but talking about it is not as risky as having done it. Now, iteratively, it often seems that way because nobody wants to make a mistake and we're all caught in this facade of looking so competent and know each other and trust each other. We then start to become a little more comfortable once one person discloses a little bit and the other person will and so on. So those are kind of also examples of virtual spaces. And the principle is always the same. You know, learning occurs through making mistakes. We all know that. The real practical question is, how do you create effective ways of mistake making and learning? Because in the real situation where the consequences are high, yep, you will make mistakes, but no one in their right mind is trying to make mistakes. We so often have unintended consequences. Right. And I want to point back to the exploration of the interior world. Of course, meditation is a wonderful place to get separated from your story, your narrative, your identity by recognizing that witness role, which is so important. And one of the things that I find in the teaching I've been doing and the work I've been doing the last 15 years or so is the collapse of the emotions with the story and giving more validity, more weight to the story than being able to feel the feelings and to see the story and to then be able to operate from a place of actually splitting those and being able to operate beyond the habitual behavior and thoughts of the remembered past, which most people are living into. I love Otto's term presencing rather than presencing an emergent future. I don't know if I've made that clear, but I, I think you know where I'm going with that. So yeah. can you respond to that? Well, there's two or three things that I was hearing you kind of point to. One is. Um, the role of emotion. You know, we get tangled up. It's very hard to be aware of how much your emotional state is controlling your thinking and acting when it's controlling your thinking and acting, right? <laughs> you know, I'm not emotional, whatever. Right. You know, I'm, I, I'm just trying to get at the, whatever. So that ability to kind of disassociate or allow the emotion to be there separate from the story is, is really a, a cultivated state. I mean, you don't get there overnight. I'm very happy that there's so much interest today in mindfulness and so on. But I think by and large, there's still people are all over the map in terms of understanding why it matters. You know, I had a good friend who was just passed away a couple of years ago. And he was a founder of a, of a quite a remarkable Buddhist network of, of practitioners. These were people who were all business people and and, and investors and teachers. They lived in the real world, but they were a very, very serious Buddhist community. And, and he, he, he whimsically commented to me one time, he said, having been teaching meditation for 35 years, I find that people see it as a stress reduction. 
approach. He said, I've always thought of it as a stress intensification approach. So this idea that we need to escape from the turmoil, I mean, it's understandable. I mean, people are stressed. I mean, stress is an epidemic, right? It's very understandable. People want to escape from the stress. They want a place to be quiet. They want a place to relax. And they see contemplative or meditative practices, mindfulness as something to do that. It's a little bit like exercise. And that's not bad. I think that's great because obviously stress extracts an extraordinary toll on people physically, interpersonally, socially, collectively. So anything that can kind of help us feel a little more moderated is great. But in some ways, it misses the whole point that all the deeper cultivation traditions are not trying to get away from anxiety. They're not trying to get away from stress. They're not trying to get to a place that's all kind of relaxed and okay. Quite the opposite. They're kind of leaning into those because on the other side of the overwhelm that we experience around stress and anxiety is a different quality of being where the emotions can just be there, if anything, more intense than they would if you're trying to continually manage them. But they don't last long. I think one of the more, I think, really interesting aspects of brain science is this evidence that at the physiological level, because, you know, emotion is is now widely recognized in neuroscience as a physical phenomenon. There's always a physical correlate. There's something somatically going on in our body. That's something, that physical phenomenon rarely lasts more than one second. So it's a very interesting way for me to think about what in traditional Chinese terms they would call cultivation practices, which is a nice, I think, generic term for all these different myriad of approaches, you know, infinity of approaches to kind of mindfulness as the contemporary term, that you're basically creating a larger space within which this emotional play can occur and move on. It's not to repress it, it's not to suppress it, it's not to make your life mellow. Quite the opposite. If anything, your life becomes much more intense, but your habituation, the difference between the one second where the physiological phenomenon is going on, it's actually generally agreed to be much less than one second, but let's say one second, and the 10 years where you hold the grudge and feel hurt, and you never really recover your relationship with the person who hurt your feelings, that difference is all at the level of habituation of thought Mm -hmm. and habituation of feelings, right? So this this feeling of tightness in my chest, in my neck, what have you, is really not the emotion in its purest form. It's the habituated consequence. So one way to think about all this cultivation stuff is you're creating a larger space within which these these phenomena can occur, but there's more space for them to to move through you, to let them go which means you have a greater clarity of mind, you have more presence in all situations, more empathy and more compassion, especially for others who get all, we all get stuck in the same situation. In other words, you have a different relational capacity because you can hold things in a different way. It's a very different way to think about than stress reduction. One way to think about the predicament we have of so many systems that are really screwy, is that they've they've kind of evolved on their own with very little attention to these matters. We've done a lot of work, for example, in global food systems. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's it's not only a very crucial domain that shapes kind of modern living, but it's it's a tragic example of how disassociated we've become from, you know, how the natural world works. And you say, well, how do how does a 
person or people? How does a collective society drift so far away from thinking that, you know, you can just do whatever you need to do to produce your food and as long as it sells, it's okay. It doesn't matter what the effects are, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, literally to the point of developing business models that are based on uh, habituating young children to salts and sugars. You know, if you just ask us, well, how, how did you get to this place? I mean, what's the deteriorated state of awareness and how did it become so deteriorated that there could be so little kind of monitoring or correcting of this? And I think it, it, it's right, it, right sits at the heart of what you're talking about. This kind of long journey of mind, body, let's just say mind, body, emotion, becoming so fragmented and disassociated. You know, so for example, even though if you ask anybody in the food business, is that a good thing to addict a four-year-old to salts and sugars? They'll say, well, of course not. That's really a bad thing. And then they go about doing just that. You say, hmm, that's interesting. How does this occur? How do people become so disconnected from what they're doing versus what they think? And then they'll have some story about, well, you know, it's the business. If we don't do it, our competitors will do it. And you know, we're gonna, you know, we're trying to run a business here. They'll have maybe some justification that kind of makes it seem like it's understandable. But I don't think it's understandable at all, except in the ways you start to talk about, you know. Well, if if there's that degree of, of disalignment internally, then our ability to operate in ways that are completely disaligned or incoherent would be another word, uh, collectively, is enormous because the, the, the personal and interpersonal foundation for correcting just doesn't exist. I mean, if you think about it from the way we were talking before about learning, you know, everybody makes mistakes. Of course, you can develop bad ideas and companies can produce bad products. The question is not do you make mistakes. The question is how do the mistakes get corrected and how over time do you gravitate in a direction of healthier food or a healthier way of operating? And simple way to characterize our plight now is we have no corrective mechanisms. Our gyroscope is broken. But one of the things I want to talk about is the state of distraction, particularly mm -hmm. around the media and social media, both of them. The manipulation of data, like the Cambridge Analytic event, but just overall, Tristan Harris's work has been amazing right. and revealing yeah. that just pure greed that just a few people are sitting designing how to capture your attention and much of that is in negative ways and causing more divisiveness, more separation, more alienation and it's really a downhill slippery slope. How do you see us moving away from this and, and actually being able to create systems that are empowering and awakening and connecting? Well, it's a, it's a great and a very timely question. First off, you know, the very fact that we're starting to be able to acknowledge it and see it is a good step, you know. So this, is, this has happened very quickly. That's one thing that, that I find kind of interesting to reflect on um, in a way. I mean, if you look at the 100 years, the century it took the fossil fuel industry to grow, and become part of addicting us to cheap energy. I mean, the addictive dynamics are the same. No one actually needs cheap energy. I mean, human beings for most of human history have not had cheap energy or basically free energy. But of course, it's very addictive. Once you got it, then by golly, you know, it allows you to do all kinds of things. But it took 100 years 
for the fossil fuel industry to really get to the stages now, maybe 125 years, um, and starting to produce the extraordinary side effects that we see. The, uh, the social media kind of addictive dynamic has occurred very quickly. So in a sense, while our governments have been completely unable to, to regulate the negative side effects of the fossil fuel industry, obviously, you know, climate change being the primary consequence, their ability to regulate the extraordinarily rapid social addictive processes and deterioration. Otto uses the analogy that, you know, just as we, we kind of have significantly deteriorated the biosphere from the side effects of burning fossil fuels, we are very, very rapidly deteriorating the, the sociosphere, the yeah. the relational space that we share as human beings through social media and the addiction to the device. I think that in a, in a way, we're kind of like deer in the headlights, right? We're just paralyzed. It's happened so quickly. So to your question, I think that it, it has to start, obviously, with just trying to acknowledge it and, and sit with questions like, you know, how have we let this happen? You know, in, in a sense, the social media world started off by trying to addict teenagers who are naturally concerned with peer opinions and so on. And so, so this whole addiction to thumbs up, thumbs down, it became a very natural place to start with the teenagers. And then, of course, it spread because you might say, having never gone through the rites of passage, most of us are still teenagers emotionally and developmentally. So we're still as much victimized as we were when we were 13 or 14 or 15 to someone not liking us. So there's an interesting point of reflection, you know, so how did, you know, in a sense, there's a very high leverage strategy there. It's being used in a very adverse way, but boy, I talk about a system change, you know, and how quickly it's occurred. I mean, it's quite interesting to ponder. So what made us so vulnerable? I remember one of the first schools that was really doing wonderful work with systems thinking. In fact, that little video we were talking about before is like fourth generation in school in that same community. I mean, it, there's a lineage there that led to the school where the boys with their mean words, hurt feelings, f feedback group example I was telling you about. It's in the same larger community and there's teachers who influence teachers who influence teachers and so on. But I will never forget this one teacher saying, you know, I'm a middle school maniac. And teaching middle school is really hard because guess what? You're dealing with a bunch of kids who are 11, 12, 13, 14. That's tough age. But it's not news, right? Biologically, the, the extraordinary dynamics of that age period have been understood for a very, very long time. This like didn't just happen to us, this generation. You know, puberty is something that's been around for a very long time, shared by all kinds of mammalian species and analogously by non-mammalian species, and all the extraordinarily complex interior work and interior changes that are going on. Still, it's been understood that it's a crucial time developmentally. And this is why societies for thousands of years literally have all had their rites of passage, their distinctive ways of helping a person at that age, one, start to develop a new sense of identity because that's a lot of what's going on. I'm becoming an adult. What does it mean to become an adult? I'm not really separate, but I'm also not as independent, let's say, as I was. As a little kid, I could just run around and I was more or less on my own, but now I'm less or less on my own. My actions really affect a lot of other people and maybe I have a larger responsibility. So if you think about rites of passage and their generic functions, one, to cultivate a sense of connection of self to the social reality. 
of self to the larger natural reality, and ultimately then of self to self. Well, who, who am I as an adult? And all that completely ignored today, completely ignored. I mean, our school systems give no attention to it whatsoever, except a few really extraordinary educators like this lady who, remember when I said, said I'm a middle school maniac. There was something about working with children at that age and that developmental transition that seemed very, very important to her. So you'll see my point here in just a second. Maybe it's already obvious. We have a society of people who have never matured. They have simply never gone through any meaningful rite of passage. They don't know who they are. They don't know who, how they're connected to each other. They don't know how they're really connected to the larger natural world. Now, we have a lot of kind of uh, moralizing about that. Everybody's got, you know, you should be this, you should be kind, you should be compassionate, et cetera, et cetera. But it's a developmental process. It's not a matter of good ideas. It's a deep developmental process. It either occurs or it doesn't occur. And I think by and large, it hasn't occurred. I think that's why we're so vulnerable to social media. We're, we're extraordinarily concerned by how we're seen and perceived. If you think about it, is what this whole social media thing is all about. The image I'm projecting of myself another sees, as opposed to my experience of self in relationship. It's a very fundamental shift. I think most adults have just never gone through the shift. Yeah. Yeah, it's huge what you're saying. And, you know, in the past, tribal indigenous communities always had a rite of passage. And we, we have nothing like that. I have a feeling that climate change may end up being our rite of passage, actually. <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah. One of the things, you know, that's, that's also interesting, Peter, in your work, one of the focuses is you need to have a long projection of time. In order to cause a system change, you need to think right. in the long term. But right. the problem is right now that we don't have long term. Things are moving so fast. So many things are approaching tipping points and places where socially, economically, ecologically, all of these systems are degenerating at an, at an exponential rate. How do we rectify that need to have a long-term view, walk as if we were in infinity, yet act in the moment? First, you know, very mundane level, you know, just to be humble about what we will or will not accomplish, you know, what time frame. I mean, climate change is a, is a particular type of gift in that it's just a symptom. I mean, really, it's a symptom of a, of a culture that's drifted completely out of alignment in connection with the larger natural world and therefore thinks it can do whatever it needs to do to produce cheap energy or produces food and sell it any way it feels like, no sense of impact on other species or whatever. So all these are, are these are just different, these are systems that are symptomatizing or showing us the symptoms of this underlying disconnect. But it has a, climate change has a few particular features which I think are very helpful. First off, it's actually not that complex from a scientific standpoint. You know, the fundamental dynamics of, of carbon and, and dioxide and other greenhouse gases accumulating in the atmosphere are really quite simple. It's a big bathtub, right? And, and as long as the inflow is greater than the outflow, the bathtub keeps rising. The inflow is emissions, the outflow is sequestration all the ways the greenhouse gases come out of the atmosphere. And the imbalance is huge. And consequently, the, the bathtub level is growing very rapidly. Once you start to understand that, again, it's 
four-year-old or five-year-old understanding of climate change. It's a big bathtub. Well, first you've got to reduce the inflow till it's more or less equal to the outflow. That's, quote, carbon neutrality. And we know we have a long, long way to go. At that point, the bathtub level starts rising. But what if already the bathtub has got much, much more in it than it should? I mean, we already know the concentration of greenhouse gas in the atmosphere is about as high as it's been in, in certainly, uh, well, that's what we can tell, more than the last half million years. We've not seen this level of concentration for over a half million years. That much we kind of know from ice core samples in the Antarctic. And that was the first big smoking gun that the climate change scientists had at their disposal over 20 years ago. They had these long-term studies of atmospheric gas concentrations and could show that, you know, yeah, things go up and down, things go up and down. Of course, climate moves up and down. Everything in nature goes up and down. But then, ooh, look at where we are. Now, when we, when we cost 350 parts per million, we were out of the range of the last half a million years. We're now at 420 parts per million almost. So even once you've brought emissions down to the point that they're no longer exceeding sequestration, which is a huge, monumental undertaking. We are nowhere close to that, and you know probably will take us at least another 30 to 50 years. At that point, you're now sitting with uh, greenhouse gas concentrations of 450 parts per million, 480 parts, way, way outside the norm. And guess what? The world keeps heating up. And it will continue to keep heating up until that concentration starts to come down, which means emissions have to be much lower than sequestration. Once you start to get that, you realize, oh, shit, you know, it's taken us, depending on how you count this, at least 100, 200 years. You could say it's taken us a couple thousand years to get to this point, but burning fossil fuels is really only the last 150 years or so. We're probably not going to solve this problem very quickly. It's probably going to take quite a few generations not years, not decades, generations. Mm -hmm. So we should be prepared for a very difficult time. Maybe we concentrate on things that we could actually do something about, like tolerates, tolerating each other and learning that it's gonna be tough. You know, uh, when you face a really difficult uh, medical situation, particularly in a family, you know, the first thing you get to is you gotta say, you know, this is gonna be really hard. And it's amazing what families can accommodate and how they can handle extraordinarily difficult situations. But I got to start off by by getting on the on the level and and realizing no no this is this is a long term thing. We're like that. And you said this could be our our rite of passage. It could be if if you can really conceive of a collective rite of passage of the waking up of modern human society. Mm-hmm. But I also would just point out that probably we've never had this situation before and this wake up being literally at the level of humankind on the planet that doesn't mean a hundred percent of all humans it just means some sort of critical mass that really starts to shift how societies everywhere are living you know in the next 10 years we've got to obviously start to really show we can make progress i would say the key thing for the next 10 years is we really start to listen deeply to the voice of young people and the young people in turn start to see that well we're really making an effort. The problem with youth climate movement is not that it's not right on the money, it's completely on the money, but that how does it also become realistic? This will not happen in your generation. If we really get our act together, it can really start to happen in the generation of your kids and your kids' kids. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's impossible. 
I just think it's a such a radically different kind of stance. Um, and you know, there's an old saying in traditional Chinese culture: the mark of every golden age is the children are the most important members of society. If the children are the most important members of our society, we start to think long term. It's that simple. Yeah. Because this whole long term conundrum is not my work or our work. It's always been a cornerstone of the systems community that is as long as you can ignore the long term, you can make systems of all kinds of crazy, stupid things in the short term, which makes somebody more money or make somebody look better off or create some short term advantage. Life is full of short term benefits at the cost of long term costs. The question is, we just don't have any balance right now. It's back to the comment I was making before. Our ability to balance is just completely lost. I do think in the next 10 years, if we start to really listen deeply and start to say, well, what does it take? Do we really start to think our lives are about our children? Maybe we would start to kind of start the journey. But the main thing is to appreciate the journey is going to take quite a few generations. Yeah. That's what climate change, I mean, that's why I say that's the gift of climate change. It shows us without a shadow of a doubt that these problems are not like 100 years off. They're like here right now. I think that's a shift, by the way, in the last two or three years yeah. around the world. There's this, oh, my God, this is not, you know, sometime in the 20th first century. This is like right now. Our forests are burning up. Our reservoirs are drying up. We have drought and flooding all over the place. It's happening now. But then, of course, that can create a panic reaction. That's not going to help much because this is much more like a, a long-term, you know, panic, not a short-term panic. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's a rebuilding process. And I don't see any way to do it but to do it together. And I think the, the children could be our guides. Imagine like a, like a children's council from around the world mm-hmm. where you really kept hearing the voice of the five and six and seven and eight-year-olds. And it was very visible. And, and, and it would evoke something. See, it's, I'm, I'm kind of back to our earlier conversation in a particular way. What we lack is the emotional capacity to rebalance. It's not really an intellectual problem. We all know we're in trouble, but we don't have the emotional ballast to do anything about it. Listening to the voice of the children starts to kind of create that. And I do think in the next decade or so, that could be the, the most important real step. That plus just simply recognizing that, no, no, this is not going to happen overnight. Oh, by the way, we're all enormously distracted by the political Sturm und Drang. And we got to let go of that. I mean, really, it's so unimportant in the big picture. Don't, don't get me wrong. Please don't hear me saying you should ignore politics. But we're obsessive about it. And, and that's not going to help us. Because these are not political problems, they're cultural problems. And are we, are we really surprised that our political apparatuses are becoming more and more dysfunctional as, as our culture is crashing against the wall? I don't think we should be. You know, everybody's got their version of Donald Trump. It's not Donald Trump. It's the underlying conditions that create the, the, the fear and anxiety and sense of disconnection. People feel totally disconnected. And guess what? They, they vote for somebody often who they feel you know, represents their anger. We're not dealing with the underlying sources of where that anger comes from. If we get all caught up in the political drama, it's, it's, a, it's a great, again, I'm using this metaphor with some concern because it could easily be misheard. It's a great sideshow, but it's not the show. It's a yeah. big sideshow. 
You know, I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Karen O'Brien, climate scientist Karen O'Brien. I no. highly recommend her work. She's at the University of Oslo and helped Paul Hawken write Drawdown. The reason I bring her up is her amazingly brilliant erudite work says in the end, climate change is a relationship issue. And mm -hmm. it seems so obvious, and yet mm. we're not looking at that part. So I'd love as we get towards the end here to maybe take a, a look back at the personal issue and how that relates to the community issue. People are so um, apathetic and, and resigned. Many people are, not all people, but right. many people right. are. Many young people particularly are, and they want to grab onto a hero like Bernie or something, but they're still inside. There's that apathy and that resignation. And okay. we go back to the inner development part and the relationship of myself to sacred other, to community, and being able to move into that space between us. How can we do that and, and contribute to that? Like the individual that's listening to this radio show, how can they go from this radio show and be in action, do something, and reflect on it like the model, uh, and be able to feel they make a difference in what they're doing and connect with <clears throat> other people. Any, any thoughts you have about that, Peter? Well, the, the syndrome you're characterizing is one that I've kind of tended to just refer to as the fatalism of the age. I think it's more mm -hmm. pervasive than, than almost anybody recognizes. You know, I think I first started to realize how pervasive in when we started working with kids, because kids are very candid. And if you have real dialogue circles with, you know, eight and nine and 12 year olds, you know, I guarantee you after a while, you, you really know what's on their mind. <laughs> I guarantee you. The key is the adults have to shut up because the adults will always take over. If you, but if you just let the kids talk, and I've never not heard climate change and poverty arise spontaneously in those conversations. And I'm now talking over the last 15 to 20 years. So kids are acutely aware of these deep imbalances in the world today. And of course, they see all the visible signs of, quote, leadership, you know, visible people in authority. And it's not very, it's inspiring, quite the contrary. So they, they become very fatalistic. And I think fatalism is, is, is a good way to characterize this because it's basically saying we're screwed. There's nothing that can be done. It isn't necessarily disengagement. Obviously, it can lead to disengagement. But I think the path from fatalism to engagement is really the one where you have to learn how to trod. You'd have to be a little bit loony to not be pretty pessimistic today, really. Come on. You know, so it's, it's pretty natural that you move from pessimism to fatalism, feeling that things are really deep, we're really deep trouble, and then probably no one's going to do anything about it, and we're screwed. I remember that was heard. one kid say like, hey, it's really simple. We're just screwed. We know that. Everybody knows that. But then the, the kind of awakening that occurs out of that, you know, first off, the truth when told is just the truth. It's no more or less. Ultimately, it'll be a little bit philosophical now. It's just a thought. Just an idea. You know, we don't know we're doomed. We just think we're doomed. You know, fatalism is an emotional state generated out of a thought. And the thought is, we're screwed. 
So trying to change the thought or change the emotion is probably pretty low strategy. You kind of let it sit there. And then you find out, well, so what do you want to do? What do you want to work on? And so I think that out of real truth-telling about our perceptions, okay, great, that's that. Now what? You know, you just, you don't have to get so stuck in it. Then I think there's a clear guidance. And it's not a new principle. We're all quite familiar with it. It's been articulated in so many different ways. Whatever we do, do it in a way that you're kind of manifesting to the best of your ability, the kind of reality you want to live in. One of my mentors, a woman who found an enormously successful social justice organization, an organization of all former gang members who work with gang members, they have a saying, you can't get to a good place in a bad way. I love that saying. You can't get to a good place in a bad way. And of course, you'll recognize the kind of Gandhian principle, right? So whatever you're doing, do it in a way that to the fullest of your ability, you're really respecting the relational integrity of others. You're, you're really building the kinds of relationships that you want to have. You're doing your best, although it will always be obviously imperfect and limited, but you're doing your very best to live and operate in a way that you really, really like to live and operate. You cannot get to a good place in a bad way. I think that then becomes the kind of guiding ethos of all change activities. And if you really take that seriously, you look at so many of the activists in the world, they're just not practicing that at all. They're angry. They're out to get people. They're really out to show somebody's wrong. The truth is we're all wrong. We've created this reality. That's some boogeyman. You know, we can point our fingers at the at the the oil companies or the drug companies or the whatever, but hell, we're the ones who are their customers. So we've all created this problem. So giving up this notion that there's bad guys out there and what we're really doing is going to beat the shit out of them, that's that underlying anger. But say, no, you cannot get to a good place in a bad way. I've just found of all the things I've heard over the last 20 years, it's one of the most useful bits of guidance to keep asking myself, am I doing this in the best way I can? There's a lot of anger here. I realize I'm dealing with somebody who's really, really angry, really dislikes me. Okay, great. Fine. How am I adding to the anger or reducing the anger? Mm-hmm. How am I holding it? Remember once we were in one of the sessions, I think it was probably in BC, not far from where you are with the Dalai Lama, and someone asked him, you know, you're obviously very aware of all the problems in the world. Why are you so happy? Why do you laugh all the time? And I'll never forget his response. He said, the world has a lot of suffering. It does not need mine added to it. Brilliant. I love that. The world has a lot of anger. It does not need my anger added to it. Mm-hmm. So that kind of is, that's the, that's the gyroscope. You know, that's, if we can just keep practicing that, whatever, because I think once you acknowledge the fatalism, Great, fine. Now, what's next? You go, you find something to go to work on, right? You find something you care about. And so, you know, human beings aren't going to sit around. I mean, maybe a few, but not many are going to sit around and do absolutely nothing. The problem is when we go into action, we're coming from a space of anger and hurt and not being seen. And of course, we'll just keep recreating that. So brilliant what you're saying. And I love it. It's a good way to wrap it up. And I, I just want to add that, that's so important, and you've talked about this, and I've been talking about it for years, is to focus on what's possible and what we want rather than what's wrong. And the primary focus seems to be uh, culturally on what's wrong rather than on what's possible and what we could do and what we want, our intention. 
I have to say, Dr. Peter Senge, I am so grateful to you for your tireless work, for taking the time to be with us today. I wish we had about five more hours to dig even deeper in these uh, subjects. Perhaps we'll do it again, but just uh, deep gratitude and appreciation to you, my friend. Thank you, Michael. Take care. You too. Conversations is an independently produced program supported by KVMR 89.5 Nevada City and listener contributions. We are committed to bringing you leading-edge thinking in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, and spiritual fulfillment. If you would like to receive our complimentary newsletter, The Well of Light, make a contribution, or order any of our past shows, go to our website at arewelistening.net.